Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, gays, and other individuals who are not gays. Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of Dark Neck of the Podcast. And I gotta say, right now, Troy and I are, I would say, still flying high after having the privilege and opportunity to watch the brand new Scream entry here a couple of days ago. That's still on my mind. How about you, Troy? Absolutely, Roger. We were lucky enough to go on Thursday night. I think we both went different cities, obviously, but we both went at 7 p.m. on Thursday night to the special, you know, advanced showing. We did. I'd I have it no other way. Yeah, guys, we're not going to spoil anything for you. So if you haven't seen it, don't shut us off. We swear to God, we're not going to spoil mm-hmm. anything. Um, no. But I loved it. I know you loved it because we talked about it afterwards and I've seen your social media posts. You've seen my social media posts. I thought the film, I'm just going to leave it here. I thought the film did everything it needed to do to revitalize that franchise. Uh, it made some choices that should have been made a long time ago. You know, I, I, I just liked what they did with the new characters. I liked the, um, just the dynamic of everything. I thought the clip, the, the, the script, the clip, the script was actually super clever, full of homages to the other previous films, lots of visual Easter eggs related to the previous films. You could tell that the filmmakers really had a lot of respect for the screen franchise and for Wes Craven. And you know, it, it puzzles me, Roger. I've seen a lot of fans of scream say that they hated this movie and I'm sorry. I don't understand how you could be a fan of like the original scream and hate this movie because it's, I mean, it follows the formula pretty well. You know, it's certainly more entertaining than part three and part four. I just watched part four the other day again, and it kind of, uh, after seeing the new one, I'm, I'm thinking this one edges out four. the new one edges out four you, for me. You know, I, I'm a diehard lover of part four, one of the few. Um, but I really was very close between this and four is like, if I were to say like, what's my top five order of the scream movies? Like obviously one takes the cake, but then it bobbles between four and the fifth entry for me. Uh, it really does because I, I just, I loved this film. I think it was elegantly transitioned this franchise into a new era and it both respected the original material, but also paved a path for new material without it feeling too forced. There's a few little gripes I had, as you always are going to, you know, that's always going to be the case. Nothing, no movie is ever perfect. But for me, this was way closer to perfect than I would have anticipated, especially after walking away from the last few entries to the Halloween series and personally being very unsatisfied. Speaking for myself, I know a lot of people really loved the 2018 Halloween and the film to follow, Halloween Kills, not as many, but still there are fans. Um, I was not a fan. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm a purist. I like the original storyline. Don't fuck with, uh, in my mind, perfection. But they chose to, and, you know, to mixed results. This, they stuck to the bones of, of, of what makes Scream Scream. They didn't change anything in the sense of what's already been laid out before it. They just built off of it and expanded off of it. And in doing that, they allowed a lot of the characters that are legacy characters that have existed to uh, explore like new relationships with each other. Uh, again, we're not getting too crazy into this, but like the, the growth between like Sydney and Gail as two grown women now who have gone through some shit together. And at one point we're swinging punches at each other to see them like really turn to each other, um, you know, console, support, be there for one another. I thought that was a beautiful, natural evolution for these characters. And I just want to see more. Um, I think that this fresh take on the franchise with this new talent behind the camera is really breathing some new life into it. Uh, not that I don't love what came before. I love Scream 4. I love the fucking result of that movie, the outcome of that movie. But let's see, like, let's see what's going to happen now where it's 2022. Let's move in a new direction and see what potential there is for this story. Because I'll say one thing, Troy, I really liked. You, people, Some people are saying that they stuck too close toward, to the original storyline with this one. They just basically remade the original. And like, I got one thing to say. First thing that they chose to do was not have there be a first victim at the opening of the movie. A, a trope that has been stuck with film after film after film after film now. They, they started it off with a, something new. They fucked with the formula right off the bat. So, I mean, I, I don't agree with that. They homaged the original film. They acknowledged its presence. They mirrored it in certain ways to uh, elevate the storyline. But overall, man, I think they really knocked it out of the fucking park. I was very, very, very impressed. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. And I, well, that wasn't spoilerish, people, because if you watch the trailer, I think it, it made it pretty obvious that the opening victim, you know, didn't necessarily actually die. So just watch the trailer. We didn't spoil anything. Uh, but that is that was a huge kind of twist on what we've come to know from the scream films because the scream films are known for their opening kill right that's that's what we want to watch them for they've kind of gotten more elaborate as the film goes on all i want to say is yeah that's i guess that's what i mean i mean if you didn't like the film okay i i get it i i just have a hard time fathoming how a scream fan could not like the film when like you said it took it back to the bare bones of the story there wasn't much there wasn't any like wild or crazy hollywood you know new hollywood adventures in this one um it was just back to woodsboro back to someone stalking these these new batch of teenagers in a ghost face mask making the ominous calls and i i like the fact that it took a much darker tone as well i feel like this film is the darkest of all of the entire franchise the the kills in this one are the most brutal, certainly, of the entire franchise. And, you know, I like I like what they did. I like how they balanced out the legacy characters with the new characters. I think David Arquette was very this is probably his best performance as Dewey. I like that he kind of shed shed the goofiness that has been that we've been plagued with by the Dewey character for for four previous films for a more serious, solemn performance. But yeah, I don't want to dwell on the scream. This isn't a review of the scream, folks. But if you haven't seen it, folks, I, I suggest, I highly suggest it. It's probably my third favorite of the franchise now. And that's saying a lot because I really love one and two. So for this one to be right up there, 
I think it definitely did everything it needed to write. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I would give it the same placement in my order as well. Uh, though my order is a little different from yours. It does fall neatly into third, but still, I love this series. And I think this is actually a very good segue topic uh, for where we are right now as we transition into our actual review. Because one thing I have to acknowledge with this new Scream is you see the influence of of films that came before it in, in this, you know, this formula. We've seen it done so many times, slasher movies in general. There's only so many ways that, that people can die. But you, you do really see in this new take on Scream how the genres evolved. It really has, like, visually improved. I mean, like, this is, the new Scream is a sleek, slick beautiful film but you look back on some of these classic movies with some of these dramatic tense sequences the swelling building uh suspense and tension and you you really see how much influence some of these earlier films have had on the genre and no matter how you film it no matter how you change it no matter how you do it that imprint remains you know and i think the movie we're talking about today which is the prowler which is a a title that uh, while it may not be at like the height of fame as such, like maybe like a Scream or a Freddy or a Jason or some of these like you know franchises that have really just blown up and taken off and become these cash cows, the Prowler 1981 film is still I think very much respected uh, by horror movie purists, um, and I completely get why, and I see the influence this film has had on you know bigger more impactful movies that have come after it uh even leading into a a title like the scream series the influence from this film is there absolutely yeah and we are going to get right into it but first roger before we get into uh the prowler or our, our review of the prowler our discussion of the prowler we have to acknowledge we finally did it we finally did it oh my goodness what after, is after, it oh after months of 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 hyping and 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 promoting and and virtually begging our our listeners to check out our patreon page because we've been stuck at seven patrons for the last couple of months we got our eighth patron girl this is like that scene in the wizard of oz where all the <laughs> all the um, munchkins come doing pinwheels <laughs> celebrating like this yeah. is a big day it's a big fucking day I think it was the decoys episode. Oh, that just dropped. you know it was that decoys. We we <laughs> you we we used decoys to get a new patron, but yeah, we dropped a new uh, Patreon exclusive episode, full length episode for January, our first one for January. We caught we talked about the 2004 sci fi horror hybrid film called Decoys. Uh, posted it and within minutes had a brand new patron. So we want to thank you, John Doolin for uh your patronage we truly appreciate it we hope you enjoy our content and folks hey if you want to hear your name mentioned on this lovely podcast check out our patreon page dark night of the podcast go to patreon.com dark night of the podcast and you will see we have several now full-length uh exclusive patreon episodes as well as several mini episodes and many 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 more to come so again, so again, John, thank you, thank you so much, uh, and we hope you enjoy decoys. Oh yeah, I mean, I have a feeling that he's 
really enjoying decoys because it, it's been a minute. It's been a dry spell. We're climbing to double digits. Let me tell you, once we hit 10, I mean, the shirts come off here. Oh, we yeah. get really into it. But let's say that name again, just to make it clear how really appreciated and cherished he is. John Doolin. Hats off to you. Thank you. Hats off to you, John. And again, you too could hear your name on Dark Night of the Podcast. Oh, what a treat. <laughs> what a fucking treat. Oh, my God. I mean, I can't think of a better way to really kick off this episode than such a positive and upbeat note before watching a bunch of people brutally murdered. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> now we're going trans- to transition from the positive upbeat note right into Soldier PS- <laughs> PST. <laughs> Oh, this film. Okay. This movie. Listen, listen, let me just put it out there right now. I picked this one. You did. And, and it, um I would have picked it eventually, but it, I'm I'm glad you did. I'm glad you Yeah, did. you know, it's it's one of those titles that like is does it have its flaws? Sure. Do most movies from this era within the genre have their flaws? Fucking yes. A, a lot of them. Most of them. A lot of these are not elegant pieces of cinema. A lot of them are rough around the edges. And one thing I got to say about this movie is it is visually a pretty seamless, tight little film. I mean, this movie, for all of its clunky little aspects, I wouldn't say any of it is technical. This film is executed very well. This film looks beautiful. This film, even at its slowest, most sludgy <laughs> dragging on moments it's still a shot with an eye for cinema that is really i think just pretty exquisite and if you do look at any of the influence it's had with on within the genre i would say it's like the moments of suspense as drawn out as they may be the the times that they let the camera kind of go into a handheld or just kind of just be really drifting around the characters and moving around them it seems a very ahead of its time and Yeah, I mean, is the pacing sometimes weird? Sure. But again, like I would say, it's not a technical thing. It's more in the sense of just the story that's being told. But God, I'm going to be real. I really, really fucking like this movie. Um, I can see past most of the little issues that people do tend to voice when they talk about it. Because what it does deliver, oh, how it delivers. Well, shall we get into it? I mean, yeah, Troy, do you have any thoughts before we start breaking it down from I mean, I, point I A? Just, I, I'm just, I just want to get into this film uh, it's because I'm going to mention my thoughts kind of as we go. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, The Prowler is a, I mean, it's a classic slasher film. I would put The Prowler, like if someone held a gun to my head and it's like, you got to pick like five slasher films from the 80s that you would tell a, you know, a, a up and coming young slasher fan that wanted to get a taste of the eighties slasher, you know, cinema that they had to watch. The Prowler would be one of them. Um, That's not to say that I'm in like total love with the movie because there are things about it that I'm not, you know, a fan of. I think, I mean, what the Prowler does right. And I think what makes it a, a standout film uh, or a film that gets a lot of attention is basically the death scenes. Yeah. The the death scenes really like more so than most films of the era, they they excel. Like they are out of the park. We gotta mention it's directed by Joseph Zito, 
who went on because of this film was chosen to direct uh, Friday the 13th part four, the final chapter, which many people consider the best or one of the best films in the franchise. I can definitely see a lot of the influence that this film had on Friday the 13th part four. So it's kind of cool that he was able to go on and do a, a, a popular franchise film in one of the most successful horror franchises of, of all time based on kind of this little indie film that also has the makeup effects done by Tom Savini, the Prowler does. And that makes a lot of sense because if one thing Savini succeeds at or if one area he excels in, it, it's like seamless practical effects uh, in the midst of a, of a of a fluid action or emotion. He's really good at showing things like separate or sever. It's not just the visual of it. It's the action of it as well. And one thing about this movie, a lot of these deaths is you really like the camera does not cut away. You see things they're happening and they're flawlessly executed in my opinion. Yeah. You see them, you feel them. The deaths in the scene are pretty mean spirited and nasty. Yeah. Yeah. And what I will say one, before we start dissecting it, one of my little gripes, I do want to put out here and in selecting this that I want to acknowledge, um, this movie has a lot of characters and there's a lot of secondary characters and there's a lot of secondary characters that feel highly underutilized. And it's not like anyone's even bad. Like, nobody in this movie is really bad. The acting is pretty tight. It's just the way that it's written. The storyline focused so heavily on these two characters, Pam and Mark, that we're going to get to really know over the course of this film. And everything else that's happening, for the most part, is just, like, background noise, you know? There's other little storylines, but they're very minuscule in comparison to Pam and Mark. Um, and like, and what's worse is like you meet these characters who like because they're smaller supporting roles, they're really not developed very well. You expect them to either evolve and be part of the storyline, or die in a horrible way, like other characters are. And it just it doesn't happen for some of these characters, and it feels like there's a lot of missed opportunities within this film. Oh yeah, I have I have that in my notes as well. As we go along, there are characters that kind of pop in, and you think they're they're going to be prominent or have something to do, and they they just are forgotten. Uh, but let's get into it, right? Let's let's start. So the Prowler it starts with kind of old news footage of the Queen Mary ship bringing troops home from World War II. Yeah, this footage is almost like it's. So unexpected for the start of this film because we, I mean, dude, we have watched so many movies and I feel like it's always like um, a pissing contest of like what opening credit can outdo the others in the sense of like darkness or tone or execution. And this movie just gets right into it with this newsreel footage, which like in its own right, it's kind of mind blowing because it's, you just see this, like the ship, the Queen Mary brimming with soldiers as they're arriving home from war and it's, it sucks you right in. It sets the tone right away. Uh, because it's authentic news footage, you really feel like exactly what they're handing off to you. But also the the guy that's doing the the, the voiceover over over this particular, you know, news footage, he sounds cheery as fuck. Oh, he sounds super cheery, but he's talking about like the trauma of war. And what he's ta- <laughs> yeah, and what he's talking about, I'm like, dude, you sound way too happy about <laughs> telling the... The, the public that all these guys are coming home from war and are going to have, 
you know, traumatic experiences based on their experience at war, but he sounds very happy about it. Yeah, yeah. His dialogue is, I mean, without saying it, his dialogue is very much talking about just how prevalent PTSD will be in a lot of these soldiers' lives. And that right there, I mean, is a dead giveaway of what is a... Like it's a it is a focus within the film, but I really wish it would have come back up significantly more because it's actually one of the most intriguing elements of this villain, and they do not give you nearly enough. Oh, I was just gonna say, Roger, unless you're even unless you're paying attention, like I I got it, you got it, I'm sure a lot of people got it, but if you unless you're sitting there really paying attention, like I think that it it's it's such a minuscule part of 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 the plot in terms of how it's mentioned or how it's developed that it doesn't even seem prominent but it should be because it is very much a part of the motivation of the killer if not his entire motivation right right um but it's it's glossed over so quickly and the only time you get any mention of it is this opening scene but then it cuts to you know after this cheery news news announcement about troops coming home that are traumatized we get a voiceover um from a woman we find out her name is rosemary uh reading a dear john letter that she is writing to her love who's in the war basically telling him that she's calling it off because she can't wait for him any longer that it's been long enough and she needs to move on she still cares about him and hopefully they can be friends when he gets back. Yeah, that the uh, opening news footage transitions transitions very nicely into this letter uh, because the style is very like it still maintains a very nineteen forties esque style to it. Scrolling down this handwritten letter, giving you a very elegant voiceover. Um, it's a it's a nice intro, and it's very much uh, setting its own tone. This movie. Um, for all of its issues, it, it it isn't. I don't necessarily think it's trying to be like a Halloween or trying to be a Black Christmas. It's doing its own thing with the concept, but you can tell the creators behind it had enough skill and enough talent to make this their own thing. Oh yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, it's a slasher film, but it is definitely not following the kind of formula of like you mentioned like Halloween or a black Christmas. I mean, yes, there's stalking scenes and stuff like that, but you're right. It is trying to do something a little bit different in, in, in terms of it's taking its time to get to where it's going, spending a little bit longer time with the characters than we're accustomed to in a slasher film. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And it even does uh, take the time to, with this opening it expands beyond just this opening kind of newsreel footage to actually give us a scene set within the era as well during 1945. It opens up with this big uh, kind of ball that's being held for the graduation ceremony of this uh, campus. They're, they're having this big dance and it's set in 1945 and it's very much like of the era. They have, you know, vehicles from the era. They have people dressed in costume pieces of the era um, for the most part, it looks pretty damn good. Some of the hair is a little bit 80s influence, but overall for doing a period piece opening, they do a damn good job with it. And it really sets kind of like the the level that we should expect over the course of the rest of the film, just how much effort and gloss is being put into this production, which does look very nice. I do like the house, like this main, this main house of this, 
this college. I'm assuming it's a college, but it's kind of weird because you never really see like the actual college campus. Uh, you just see like this one dorm house where the girls are. And then this large, larger house that serves as like the location for the ball, but like, there's no college campus around. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of weird. Uh, but I, I love that they deck it out in, in, in lights and it's all festive. And yeah, you get all the, you get all the forties couples going into this dance. It looks like a, a fun time. They're playing some Glenn Miller and some nice jazz music and stuff like that. Uh, you kind of get introduced to a hodgepodge of characters before it focuses on, one particular girl and her date who he is kind of a pushy asshole. Uh, he, 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 he's like, let me got to get out of here. This isn't, this isn't happening. Let's, let's get out of here. So he makes her leave. And on the way out, she bumps into somebody and he's like, don't touch my girl. And apparently it's just like, she's like, Oh, he's just the, the caretaker of the place, but they go, they leave, they get in his car and, and they take off. From the dance. Yeah. He ends up taking her to an area near the house that is uh, basically like a gazebo set near a pond. And this is also decorated very lovely. More lights. There's swans. I mean, this whole opening is just lavish and bright and colorful and beautiful and, and, and very moody and very atmospheric. Once they get to this kind of secluded gazebo... It takes on some really nice blues, and lo- the lighting is just very um, impactful in this film. You get a lot of shadow play over the course of this movie, but specifically the sequence, very well shot, and he takes her over to this gazebo, and they're romancing each other, and as they embrace, you see a figure come up and raise up a pitchfork, and... She sees it. She starts to respond, but he's on top of her kissing her. And before she can say or do anything, the pitchfork plunges down into his back. And it slowly, it's very agonizing, digs into his back through him and into her torso, killing both of them. And it's just like a fucking bloody mess. It's quite an impactful opening. And it closes with a moment of the mysterious figure placing a rose atop her dead body. Yeah. And there is this, there is the moment where the killer takes his boot and like uses it to push in, like slam in the pitchfork into the guy's back so that it goes in further. I mean, this killer is not fucking around. This killer is pretty vicious. I do like the moment though, right before the killer shows up when they're making out and all of a sudden all of the lights on the gazebo go out. Um, And she's kind of concerned about it. But this horny dude, he's like, no, sit back down. It's nothing. And why are you being so hard to get? Why are you playing so hard to get now? Do you, don't you remember New Year's? And she's like, oh, yeah, but I was I was just feeling frisky that night. <laughs> but they, yeah, they're not worried about the fact that someone just cut the lights of the gazebo off. But yeah, it's a pretty bloody death. I mean, it's, it's a bloody mess. And going off what you're saying with the lights, Troy, that's actually one thing I like about this is even though because there's a big time jump. That is something where um, this killer has like little consistent little uh, things that he does over the course of his kills that are uh, all kind of stylized and similar. And the light thing comes up again later in the film where the lights in another location drop out. It goes dark for a moment. Like he's very calculated. This killer is calculated and planned. And um, 
as you come to learn, this individual has military background, like military experience, which makes for an even more like intimidating assailant pursuing you because he just has all these things in his corner along with like a large repertoire of weapons. So like, he's just a fucking badass. The killer's scary as fuck. I'm going to say it right now. Well, even his, you know, his, his disguise is, is military themed. He's wearing fatigues and a a military hat and yeah, pretty intimidating. I'd say honestly, from a visual standpoint, because you haven't technically seen him, clearly yet he'll be exposed a little bit later but one of the things that makes this movie work as well as it does is the actual killer and if in a slasher film if the killer is one of your pros you got an you got an ace in your pocket you know and and the visual the aesthetic even the silhouette the shadow play of this killer when he is on camera the movie is better yes and i like the fact that and we'll get to it but i like the fact that he this killer is is pretty relentless like this isn't a killer that kind of hangs out in the background and watches people um, or stalks them he goes right in for the kills there's no hesitation which is another nice little touch that you you get with this particular villain that a lot of times in 80 slashers you were you know you were forced to sit through lots of scenes of the killer like stalking his prey and and, and whatnot this killer doesn't do that once he gets to his prey, he pretty much attacks. The The long, drawn-out scenes that we get in this film are not of the killer stalking, unfortunately, because if they were, it'd be a little bit more interesting. <laughs> but we're coming, we're coming to that. After this scene, after the killer you know, leaves the rose on these dead bodies, it cuts to 1980. Yeah, and, and we find out pretty quickly that there has not been a dance held, a graduation dance, since the events that transpired in 1945. So you learn pretty quick that this incident revolving around this murder had quite an effect on this specific, this campus. Because they've not had a graduation dance since, until this year, 1980. This is going to be the big year where they finally have their first graduation dance since all that time. And it's quite a big to-do. The students are out. They're all hanging things up. They're putting up signs. They're all really invested. Well, we get introduced right away to our kind of our main man, our protagonist male of the film, Mark London, who is a police officer. Uh, He watches on as Lisa and Sherry are putting up the, the banner that announces that it's going to be the, the dance and he's watching them in, in their little short shorts that are riding up their asses. Uh, and then Pam comes out. Sensible Pam. Our, love, our lovely blonde Pam. Oh my God. What a delight. Let me say it right now. I've got a soft spot for Pam. I think she's sensible. I think Pam has her shit together. I think Pam, for the most part, operates pretty cool under pressure. I think Pam is picking up on some of the nonsense going on in this movie pretty damn quick. I got very few complaints with Pam. So we're going to say good things about this gal because she's a pretty capable and competent focal character as we come to find over the course of the film. Yeah, she's extremely likable extremely likable just kind of down to earth she's like you're you're she's like the girl next door like you you feel like you've known you know somebody like pam well she's really well acted i mean vicky dawson plays Mm -hmm. this character and she plays her 
in this from the eight, like early eighties, you always kind of expect this kind of low. You set a low bar for the the talent. You don't expect a lot. So when you get a character that seems a little more nuanced, that seems a little more um, thought out, that that has more uh, realistic, grounded responses to things, uh, it's always refreshing. And she checks all the boxes. She just gives a very believable realistic, natural performance, especially for this era. And she write, she writes, she wrote an article for the school newspaper that uh, Mark wants to read, but she kind of tells him he can't read it right now because his eyes are strained from what he was just looking at, which she's, she's kind of making a point that he was oogling over these two girls. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about Mark and his froppy hair? I don't mind Mark. I think Mark is consistently pretty capable. Um, I think Pam really takes the cake in the sense of being the stronger of the two focal protagonists. But I think Mark is trying to step up to the plate because he knows his responsibilities, because we learn pretty quickly that he's just a deputy and that the sheriff is actually going to be going away for a fishing trip, uh, an annual event for him. And he's not he's not changing that for nothing for nobody. He's going on this fishing trip and this dance is going to happen and the deputy is expected to take care of it. Yeah. So while uh, Mark and Pam, they don't they go to lunch and we do get this. We, we do find out and it comes to play throughout the film um, that there was in, in a town, a neighboring town. There was a, a, a robbery. Some a, a male robbed a convenience store and then stabbed the clerk uh to get away and for some reason they think he's this 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 robber is coming in the direction of this town so it freaks pam out it freaks kind of mark out um and it kind of adds it's kind of like the the red herring thing that runs through the movie Um, obviously the movie's called the prowler so we're we're thinking or what it's doing is it's building up a case for when anything odd happens in the movie, when, when a character thinks they see something or thinks they hear something that's not, you know, uh, that shouldn't be, they're going to automatically think, Oh God, it's the robber from the town next door. He's here so that it lessens like the, the impact of there's actually a homicidal fucking maniac dressed in army fatigues that are brutally murdering all of your classmates. Yeah, it's and it's it's like it's hinted at and mentioned a few times, but you never, you as the viewer, never directly encounter it. You never see this individual. It's always like ominously in the background being mentioned, but it's not something you actually get to view or see or witness. So, like, it seems a little bit forced um, as a you know as a red herring because, like, okay, someone commit. They say it happened in Columbus. This is apparently like you know quite a distance away i understand that that's upsetting but what are the chances that this person is going to come directly to this specific event the only thing that really plays factor in here and i think does make pam's concern a little more uh it validates it a little more for me is the fact that because of the sheriff going away deputy mark is the only one that's in charge because this is a small town um, and he's never really been straddled with this much responsibility. So Pam's like overthinking and concerned for him because of the love interest angle 
Uh, I think she's just blowing everything a little bit out of proportion because she's like, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this random man that massacred this boy and took his vehicle, you know, hours away just happens to come our direction? I mean, it does seem a little forced, but like I can buy it. Okay, that's fine. I'll I'll, I'll roll with well, it. Well, you know? it's obvious Pam is very smitten with Mark. Uh, you don't, I don't know necessarily if I get the the impression that he is necessarily as into her as she is into him, considering his flirting with all these other women throughout the film, but they make a, they make a cute little duo, but she is definitely into him. So yeah, I can see that her, her concern becomes for Mark. Like she even tells Lisa later on in the film here in, 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 that she is super concerned about Mark. Well, and I will say one thing that I think is actually in favor of both of their characters is while they introduce this romantic angle, once shit starts hitting the fan, they don't worry about making it too much of a thing beyond that. Like once things start to happen, these characters are looking to survive and nothing more. There's no romantic sequences of them kissing. There's no moments of them like falling for each other. It's survival mode. Thank God, because there's nothing worse than watching a slasher movie where like you're all your you're finding all these dead bodies, or you're being chased. The, the characters are being chased by the villain, but then they have a they have a moment to stop and kiss and make out. And oh, I've always loved. Yeah, you you don't get that with these two. The focal characters in this. Though this movie may move slowly, and I think that's a big complaint a lot of people have, because it moves slowly, there's no time spent, like, dilly-dallying, at least when it comes to the focal characters and what they're doing. Every once in a while, you might go off to, like, watch some other random storyline unfolding that doesn't get nearly enough attention. But when you are on these two, the story moves in one fucking specific direction, it knows its goal and it doesn't get distracted by any other like lesser, more boring or blase plot elements. Well, w- another red herring that pops up is in the scene where the sheriff goes into this con- the town convenience store and we get the clerk who owns the store apparently and his, I'm assuming like his brother Otis Yeah, I think Otis is supposed to be, like, somewhat slow. He assists at his brother's convenience store. Yeah, but it's he's definitely uh, right away painted as, like, a red herring. He's, like, glaring at the cop. Like, he comes in front of, like, like just busts in front of the sheriff to get his stuff. And, like, there's even the scene before the sheriff comes in the, um, the convenience store that the the clerk is like, you gotta, you gotta quit acting like this. You gotta behave. You gotta be on your best behavior. So it's like, obviously they're trying to paint like this Otis character as, Ooh, is he suspicious? Is he, could he be the one that's going to be up to all this? Uh, but yeah, the sheriff goes in to get deodorant because yeah, he is leaving for his fishing trip for the weekend. And which again, leaves, um, uh, why am I Mark in charge for the, for the, weekend and he even tells mark hey you got this you know if you need anything call me and with that he heads out in his old 70s station wagon on his fishing trip yeah yeah um so sherry who is pam's elven pixie like friend sherry looks straight out of like narnia she she's got like a short little pixie cut she's adorable she's very tiny um she's basically kind of trying to comfort Pam as they kind of discuss these murders a little bit further. Pam does keep going back to her paranoia about this 
you know, incident that happened in Columbus and if Mark is capable of handling it. Uh, and she's just scared that he's working alone. But while this is happening, we do get a few shots of who is, ends up being the prowler, lacing up his boots, loading up his gun, basically like preparing for battle. This is something that you see over the course of the whole movie is every once in a while, it'll cut to a shot of the prowler and like just like what he's doing, how he's operating, where he's looking, how he's turning his head. I don't know any of these things. Uh, it, it's something that you see continuously over the course of the film. You'll get these little cut-ins in the middle of moments that are unfolding. Uh, but this is the first time you really see that uh, in this like 1980s era, implying that this is this is very much the same, or so we think, you know, the same individual. He's very much wearing the same pieces of clothing that we saw in the flashback footage, um, and that he's getting ready for something. Oh, he's getting ready for something, all right. After yeah, after the conversation between Sherry and Pam, there is this Lisa character who I don't know what to think about Lisa because, you know, one moment she is like painted as like this fun loving kind of fun character. And then in the next moment, she's painted as being like this conniving bitch. There is a scene where we do learn that old man Chatham is he's like in charge of the the whole college right and he is the reason why or he has been the reason why there's been no dance for the last 35 years because it was his daughter rosemary that was murdered at the beginning of the film and he found their body he found rosemary and the guy's bodies in his yard he still lives in the house he's in a wheelchair he's old he can't really fend for himself anymore but there is a scene where like uh, Lisa's like ch- changing in front of the window and Sherry's like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Old man Chatham is watching you. And she's like, oh, he's he's whole. He can't do anything anymore. He probably can't even get it up. And Sherry's like, well, he still has eyes. And fucking Lisa flashes her tits at this poor old man that's sitting in his wheelchair looking out the window. So again, Lisa's a fun loving broad, but again, one moment she's painted as like this likable, fun lovable, you know, fun loving character, and then the next she's this kind of bitch. I don't know. I would equate or, or compare Lisa to she's like the equivalent of a Chacha de Gregorio from Greece. You know, Chacha, she's got the big moment in Greece where she dances with Danny. And other than that, she's like in a few little moments, but you don't really get a lot with her. But she's got one really big good scene that everybody, everybody remembers. Chacha de Gregorio, the best dancer at St. Bernadette's because of that big dance number with Danny. Well, Lisa is the equivalent of Chacha in this movie. She's like scattered throughout it. She does some bitchy little things that make me think she's a fucking bitch. And then she's got a big fucking scene. And then you don't care about her after that. So Lisa, really, yeah. It, it's hard to really like pinpoint what Lisa's purpose is other than having, let's be real, a glorious death scene. But she is what she is. One thing I do want to acknowledge about this scene, though, what's weird about it to me. This scene contains three characters in this film, all of which end up, to me, serving little to no purpose. You've got Lisa... And you've got it's Sally, right? Sally, the nerdy girl who I don't know. Sally is that Sally? Name's... But okay. what sucks is you've got a Sherry and a Sally, so that's already fucking confusing enough. But so you've got Sally, who's like the nerdy girl, who again competently acted, well played, capable performer. She brings all the goods you need to the table to give her at least a great death scene, or so you would think. You got 
her. You got Lisa showing her knockers, but not showing them because you don't see them. But she's flashing the old man. And then you have old man Chatham, Major Chatham, whom is set up to be what is, in my opinion, a major factor in the storyline. You expect Major Chatham to come out, I don't know, with like a shotgun at the end of the movie <laughs> or have like be like thrown off the side of a, a building in his wheelchair. <laughs> Something glorious. Give him a glorious ending. Let's be clear. Doesn't fucking happen. Doesn't happen. Should have happened. Huge detriment to the storyline, in my opinion, because this name, you hear Major Chatham and Old Man Chatham mentioned more over the course of this movie than any other character, and he just simply does not get the payoff I think his character deserves. Well, and it would have it made sense because he was, or he is, was the father of Rosemary, the first victim, or the first intended victim. So it would make sense for this killer to target him, you know, all these years later. But yeah, not, he, like, he, it's just disappears halfway through the film yeah yeah it, it's wild to me. yeah all the girls are getting ready for the for the uh dance i think pam looks pretty awesome in her you know pixie blue dress with the rainbow you know glittery rainbow top to it yeah They're, and she does ask sherry hey sherry do you want me to wait for you and sherry's like no she's in the shower she's like carl's gonna be over and so pam Heads out to the dance. I'll say, like, Sherry's character, to me, again, a lot of these characters are pretty well played. I expected this character to be around for a hot minute. Me too. I really did. She seems, she's charismatic. She's got a smile that lights up the screen like a sun. Mm -hmm. Like, she's adorable. She's got these cute little button eyes. She's everything I would want from a supportive best friend in a film like this. But yeah, this one thing the movie does is it, defies your expectations when killings and murders do happen a lot of time you are not anticipating it so pam heads to the dance as she's outside she does hear something in the distance so she's kind of again because she's already nervous as fuck about the robber that was in columbus she's all freaked out so she's like walking backwards and there's a nice little jump scare when she bumps into the group of friends including lisa who at this moment lisa has let me let me put this out there lisa has been super nice to pam right they really seem like they're friends which makes kind of what happens here in a little bit again it's just so I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't very good characterization. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Like, the character takes a sharp turn and at at a certain point and does not ever revert back to original form. Once this character becomes a bitch, she's a fucking bitch. Yeah. Yeah. While they go off and wander off, we do – we finally get boobies. I mean, we got some cute little boobies on cute little Sherry, and she's such a little tease. Um, And she's – Got this moment where her boyfriend Carl comes in and like chats with her in the shower, takes her by surprise. And they have this cute little conversation after this where she basically is like, come on, come get in the shower. Let's have a little fun before we go to this dance. And he's like, yeah, he uh, he's Carl's a good looking guy. You know, he he can get it. He's going to get in there. He, he even tells her she's like, he's like, aren't you going to invite me in the shower? And she's like, well, how quick can you take your clothes off? And he's like, set your stopwatch, coach. So he rushes out. He's getting undressed. He sits on the bed to take his shoes off. And all of a sudden, the killer grabs him from behind, hand across his mouth, and proceeds to force a large bayonet through the top of his skull in one quick motion, and it comes out the bottom of his chin. 
this is perhaps one of the most brutal, horrific, painful <laughs> looking death scenes to come out of the 80s. This sequence, um, one thing about this movie, I think that they set a really high bar with this kill. The first kill within the film, within this like, you know, the, the 1980s era set a real fucking high bar and they continue to match it at least come very close to it over the course of the movie. The Again, as we said earlier, the kills in this superb and they start strong. This kill, it lingers. He's struggling for a bit before his brain starts, you know, short circuiting and he starts just, you know, dying. Um, but you do see his eyes like this is the standout image for me. And it almost doesn't make sense, but I'm, I don't give a fuck. His eyes roll back in his head and they go pure white. They look very ghostly. It looks almost, it looks like something from like a scanners, uh, you know, that kind of just like white pupil, white, fully white eyeball. Um, but it's such a horrific image as he's bleeding out and his, his hands are starting to go limp and everything. His mouth is just gaping. Uh, it sticks with you. It, is, it really is. Like you said, it's one of the best of the eighties. I agree. Uh, several of the kills of this movie though would also fall amongst that title for me as well best of the 80s it does not let up over the course of this film it doesn't let up but this opening kill man this first kill is just who likes it It really sets you up to expect a lot and it holds up today i mean this is 81 we're talking what 40 years later it this this kill this this effect holds up I mean, it looks great. And yeah, the moment that his eyes shoot open and they're just white, they're rolling back in his head and he's, he's struggling and blood is just pouring out of his chin. And there's this moment where the killer takes, you can see, takes the, just like yanks the bayonet forward a little bit so that it cuts deeper. Oh, it's just disgusting. Uh, He pulls the bayonet out, wipes it off with a cloth, poor little Sherry. Poor little Vixen Sherry. She's in the shower. The killer comes in the bathroom. Of course, she thinks it's Carl. She's like, Carl, hurry up. Get in here. I'm turning into a prune. Well, unfortunately, Sherry, it's not Carl. It's the killer. He whips the shower door open with the pitchfork and stabs her in the stomach right below the titties with this pitchfork. Man, I lifts her up. As if the last one wasn't good enough, though. Like, they really, they just take that moment and they just expand upon it. They give you a double kill here where the second death is honestly just as grisly and lingered on as the first one. Like, the first one, they take they, they don't just cut away. You see all of it. Same with the second. It really just lingers on the moment. You see, like, the pitchfork... In the meat of her torso. I don't know how they fucking did it. Like, it's dug into the meat of her torso. She's bleeding out through her mouth. You see her little feet go up. And he fucking, like, lifts her up into the air. It's wild. And can we talk about her guttural scream? Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, that just adds to the effect and just the cringeworthiness of the death is her guttural crying and screaming. Because that looks like it would fucking be painful. I mean, come on. Uh, it, it does cut to the, a cake being cut at the dance. We're at the dance now. This big graduation dance. Everyone's dancing, having fun, including Mark, who is now dancing provocatively with 
none other than Lisa. As Pam watches on, she's not happy at all. Yeah, that's that's the moment where Lisa like takes that sharp turn and doesn't let up. Like she's you have this moment where like Pam is pouting and Mark comes up to chat with her and Lisa like pops up behind him and she's like on his like shoulder, like giving like Pam this look like girl, he's mine now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she, she, well, she purposely bumps him so that the uh, punch spills onto Pam's dress. And of course, Pam is pissed. She's like, I got to go change. And Mark's like, Hey, no, I'm really sorry. And she's like, no, don't be sorry. She throws the rag at him. And then you see Lisa like grinning, like she's proud of herself. I'm like, this does not make any sense because these two seem like they were just great friends. Yeah, it, it is. It ago. is strange. It is. It feels very underdeveloped. If there was some kind of rivalry between the two of them, like you needed something leading up to this. But I mean, it gets it does the job. It gets Pam out of the dance because now Pam has to go change into another sensible dress. Another. Well, I like I like the first dress better. The, uh, the second one she changes into looks like something a grandma would wear that blue looking thing with the blue yeah Ugh. Ugh. there is a moment with pam at the dance i really like that where pam is like she's watching everything unfold with mark and she's kind of like this fucking idiot and then she like looks over and paul who is like lisa's i think kind of fling is spiking the punch but he's like d- dancing he's like sidestepping and like shimmying and she just like looks at him with like dead eyes and she's like what the fuck is going like the the actress perfectly plays this moment of just being like this fucking asshole like as if things aren't already bad enough i've got this fucking douchebag so again pam wins me over every time but when she leaves the dance and and this is a very specific little moment but i fucking love this she leaves the dance pissed seething and she's walking back to her you know her house her dorm or whatever and you got this moment where she leaves in one single shot she leaves the the house where the um the event's happening where the dance is happening like the hall and it's all lit up it's glowing it's beautiful and then she walks down the sidewalk into the neighborhood and you see like the light fade away into just shadows and you hear like the, the conversations and the celebration kind of fade away. And it perfectly captures the moment from where she went to being like in this like high volume populated area where there's all these people to like a desolate, abandoned sidewalk where nobody's outside. And it's like just dark with no street lights. In a single shot, it completely shifted the tone. Yeah, and now some, some some suspense is being built because she goes back into this dorm. She's by herself. Everyone else is at this dance. So yeah, it's very isolated. The sidewalks are dark. The dorm, this this dorm building is completely empty. She goes back to her room to change and the shower is still on. So she tells uh, Sherry, she's like, hey, Sherry, it's just me. I'm going to shut the door. Shuts the bathroom door. And as she's changing, like we get the shot of the killer putting a rose on uh, Sherry's body. So we know he's still in the dorm room. And then the door, the bathroom door slowly starts to creak open. I love, love, love that moment where she says, Sherry, it's only me and I'm closing the door. Like she, she delivers it in such a believable way. She doesn't see any of the, the gore or the blood. 
No. And there's all these little moments as she's like changing her dress and throwing her shawl down where like her shawl falls atop the blood from where he was killed. Mm -hmm. So she's just totally missing it because she's just naturally kind of oblivious to it. You know, she just thinks nothing has happened. She wouldn't even register it. So she changes into this new dress. And as she's going through the closet, you see the bathroom door creak back open. Again, she doesn't notice it. And she, like, managed to overlook any of the gore. She grabs her shawl and goes to leave. And she's just completely unaware of anything that transpired. I love I love that fact. She comes in. She has this whole moment. She has this little conversation. Doesn't even pick up on it. Uh, she even goes back to, like, grab her purse. And she's still clueless. You know? Well, yeah. And, I, th- I mean, it's playing with the audience as well. Because we know the killer's in the room, right? We know he's still in there. And we're just waiting for him to come out and maybe attack her. Uh, and even like the moment when she f- leaves and then she has to go back into her, the room because she forgot her purse. She's like, oh no, come on, you know? And, but nothing happens. Nothing happens. She um, is able to get out, which again, I mean, I get it. She's the final girl. Obviously we're not spoiling anything. She's the final girl. Uh, but the way this killer operates throughout the entire film, it doesn't seem like too realistic that he wouldn't have attacked her right then and there. You know what yeah, I mean? She doesn't seem to really hold any like level of importance. You know, um, it's not like he's targeting this girl. She just gets kind of wrapped up in it. So, I mean, that that was the one thing about this scene that I was like, uh, okay, it's just, it's just played this way because we want some suspense and, you know, Pam needs to be the final girl, but like every other kill in this film that we've seen the killer do, or we see the killer do is very like, he doesn't, like I said, he's, he's not the type to sit there and stalk somebody. Once he has you, he's going to kill you. So I really think that the killer would have come out and just killed her right then and there, but he doesn't, he doesn't. Uh, she actually leaves the room after she gets her purse. And as she's going down the stairs, she does look up and he in his full glory costumed garb is standing at the top of the stairs watching her. Man, I got to say for, you know, your critiques of the moment that just transpired. Yeah, I, I hear you. I agree. I, I still was like, why doesn't he just kill her? It's easy. It would be an easy fucking kill. But the way it plays out in the sense of suspense, as she's descending that staircase and there's this whole moment where like, she hears something. She hears someone in the room, even though she just left it, there's nobody there. And so she stops and you see her foot like on the step and she's like pausing. So she doesn't like make a creak on the staircase. She's listening and you hear like footfalls. And then the first introduction you see of the killer is as he's starting to descend, descend the one staircase, you just see the shadow start to come into form the straps on the on the head the hat that he wears and everything the helmet it all starts to take form and all of a sudden he reveals himself amongst the railing in this very intimidating dramatic shot where you see him you know looking down on her from the top of the stairs i think it is a phenomenal introduction to her encountering him it, I think it's terrifying. And it gives us, honestly, one thing that we always yearn for in these films and don't often get, but it gives us a really, I think, tense 
suspenseful chase sequence. She runs down the stairs and she is screaming, trying to get into all these rooms, even though like she should know that everyone is at this dance. Like nobody is in the dorm, but she's pounding on people's doors, screaming their names like, bitch, you were just at the dance. You know, all these people are there, but she can't get out. One, the, the exit doors locked, So she has to, and the killer is like pursuing her. And there's one point where she can't get out one of the doors. So she has to run past the killer to go to the other door at the other end. And of course it's locked and she is trying to get the latch at the top of the door unlocked as the killer approaches her. And of course gets it open kind of the last second before the killer gets to her. Uh, again, some nice suspenseful s- sequencing there it reminds me very much of like the chase scene at the end of Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis as she's trying to get out of the, um, the French doors, you know, at, after she's comes across Annie's dead body and Michael has it barricaded. It's very much along that level of suspense. She runs out. Very yeah, much. She runs outside. And so. then the, fucking this random scene of old man Chatham is now outside in his wheelchair, just in this random backyard. <laughs> and he grabs her and won't let her go. And she's trying to get away and she's like, let me go. Let me, and he's, he will not let go of her until she has to like take her, her coat, her jacket off in order to get away from him. I'm like, first of all, how did this corpse in a wheelchair get downstairs outside? And if you're going to have a moment like this, you better fucking give us more. What the fuck is he doing outside? He was just upstairs five minutes ago when he must have like one of those, like uh, when you think of gremlins, like the old woman, she goes up and down (laughs) on the staircase. He's got to have some kind of contraption like that because this fucker moves. Well, we don't see it because we sure spend a hell of a lot of time in his house and I didn't see any contraption attached to the stairs. I'll say this. This fucker gets around. Like, he's getting around in this movie. He's never where people expect him to be. He's always someplace grabbing girls or watching people. This fucker is silent but deadly. He's always looming. Fucking major Chatham. Uh, I do want to real quick point out, Troy, this whole time, over the course of this whole chase, the score, sign me the fuck up. This score is... I forgot how fucking good this score is. Flutes, horns, strings, just plucking and building and clicking and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, all the suspenseful noises you expect. Like, this is a very lavish, lush, fleshed out orchestral score. It, it, you're not getting shitty early 80s synth tracks or anything. You're getting orchestration. And my God, even in the, the slower moments. At least you've got this to really just keep building and swelling and growing. The score is phenomenal. Yeah, it really builds the atmosphere of the film. And I, I like the I like the fact that when we talk about atmosphere, I just I like the atmosphere of this film. It's very contained to like these two locations, three locations throughout the whole film. Uh, again, even though I was like puzzled the whole time about where is this college at? Because this really, to me, Roger, seems like it's just like a like a, a residential street with some apartment buildings on it, you know, or some multi-level, uh, you know, residences. You don't really, it doesn't ring college campus to me at all, but for some reason it's really effective. Like it really is like the location is super effective, but 
as she's running away, as she gets away from the major, she runs into, of course, uh, Mark who grabs her. She tells her that someone chased her and that Chatham grabbed her. So Mark goes to look around as Pam waits in the truck. He's looking, you know, there are scenes of him walking intercut with the killer's boots kind of following him, but nothing really comes of it. He doesn't find anything except Pam's purse. So he goes back to his truck to give her her purse. She tells Mark that Sherry and Carl still in the dorm room. So now he goes to check out the dorm room, but when he gets there, the door is now locked. He can't get in. And there is this moment, like, I'm thinking you're a police officer, dude, like break the door down, like get in. There is this moment where he like considers it, but then decides not to. And I'm like, God damn you, Mark, if you would have just opened that door and went in and found the dead bodies, that the movie would have been over. <laughs> like nobody else, nobody else would have had to die. God damn it. This whole moment with Mark. Um, so, they they really like they give Mark a few of these moments. First of all, let's just say it that really take their time. I mean, and it's effective. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I find it effective personally because I like slow burn building suspense. Um, but I like it when it goes somewhere, and there are times that you feel that this is not like. Yes, he finds your purse. He has these little things. Maybe for this first time, I get why it's effective here because it's clear he's being watched by the killer, but the killer is not making himself present. And so there's this kind of like looming threat that he's always watching in the distance. But it really, it just like I mean, like they follow him. They're moving. You get some nice little glints of the flashlight and everything. It's very effective. But it really, like, it is, I'd say it's maybe like a fourth of the movie, the stalking sequences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'll put it out there right now. My biggest um, complaint with the film is these slow-paced moments. Um, because it just, you know, you go from a death scene to just a lot of wandering around that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, case in point, this next scene where after checking the dorm, Mark goes back to um, Pam to the truck. And he's like, well, we're going to go check out major Chatham's house. So they go to major Chatham's house. He doesn't answer the door, of course. So they go back into the back of the house to basically break in. They basically break in this old man's house. Right. They climb yeah. in through a window. They get inside and we are treated to an extremely long sequence of them just wandering around the house. Yeah. And what sucks with this is like, Troy, I feel like honestly, it's done really well. It's not like it's like a, a weak moment in the sense of the cinematography or the score. It's all doing its job. The acting, it's just like they keep wandering and it keeps building and it's building and he's going up the steps and she's discovering the portraits of Rosemary, of Francis Rosemary. And like you keep like discovering little things and trinkets, but it doesn't culminate in like a body being discovered. You know, something big and 
that moment where you like get your nut off and you're like, oh, that's why it all built. It just keeps building. Like it keeps building and building and building. So like I get why it's annoying. I still, for me, like I balance it with how well I think it's crafted. And like this is where I, like I was saying earlier, the cinematography here is, in my opinion, ahead of its time. You've got this great kind of handheld looming around the actors, moving around their heads as they discover things. The focus is going in and out. Um, the, the shadow play of the railings on the, on the walls and how they're lit. The fact that there's occasional shots of the killer like uh, abruptly like turning his mask to the scores of the music. like It all works for me. It just doesn't end soon enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's 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 prolonged. It, the, it really disrupts the pacing of the film. And I, I will say, you know, this film can be a, a chore to get through because of this pacing and because of these prolonged scenes. I'm going to tell you, it's there's been many times where I have tried to watch this film and, and find myself dozing off during these scenes. Uh, in fact, the first time I tried to watch it for this review, I dozed off. I, I woke up. <laughs> it was like, oops. Uh, so I had to rewatch it because these scenes, they just drag and nothing really interesting happens. I mean, they try to throw in a little bit of things like, okay, yeah, the killer somehow now is in Chatham's house. Cause we get scenes of him pulling out his bayonet as you know, Mark and, and Pam are exploring and then she does find the portrait, but that's not enough to really keep my interest, especially after you just gave me two stellar dance or st- two stellar death sequences. I want to get back to that. After all, this is a slasher. Movie. Oh, I agree. I agree. And I will you know, another thing I'll say, Troy is I maybe wouldn't have as much issue with these moments that take so much time. Uh, and really slow down the pacing. If the movie wrapped up all of these loose strings a little tighter, if they would have given me this pacing and also managed to really conclude things with a little more um, thought and making it a little easier and more palatable for the viewer to understand exactly what transpired, I may not have as much issue with this pacing of everything kind of concluded a little tighter for me uh, because I'll say it right now, the ending, while what it's getting at is intriguing and cool at times, well executed, it's still so open-ended in certain areas that like, I feel gypped as a viewer. Yeah. I mean, we do get this whole, this whole of them stalking around the house it does culminate in her, like I said, finding the portrait of Rosemary and then a wooden box that she opens up and finds that there's a rose inside this photo album. Um, so she is able to tell Mark when he comes back into the room that she found this and that Rosemary was the victim and that the killer left a rose at the crime scene and nobody was ever caught. Um, so that the killer is still out there. And so he suggests they go back to the dance and to make sure everyone's okay. And she does get this little like jab in him where she's like, well, maybe you should call the sheriff. Oh, she gets a few little jabs. Like at times he kind of, he kind of sasses her a little bit and she's like, oh, not today, fucker. Not today. Pam is not one to be fucked with, as you'll learn. Um, As we wrap up this first moment at um, Chatham's home, I do want to just acknowledge, because we haven't really just talked about the house itself, this specific house, super effective, really high ceilings, 
really luxuriously decorated. Certain aspects of it give me, again, vibes of like the Halloween stairwells, how they kind of turn and wind, or even the moments in like Night of the Living Dead when they're going up the staircase and you have that shadow play on the wall. But uh, the way it's structured, it's it's very creepy because, I mean, the you know, the killer could be in any of these rooms. And my God, there's so many fucking rooms in this house. So it's a great additional location. At times it looks a little bit similar to the dorm setups, but not so much that it, like, takes away from it. It's just like you have, yet again, you have another building with a lot of rooms in it. Where could the killer be? But it is visually very appealing to look at. Yeah, I do like the one room in the film that becomes kind of prominent towards the end that where all the furniture is covered by the white sheets. Yeah, uh, so they go back to the party. Back at the party, like, the guys are, there's some guys doing pot in the um, bathroom where uh, Lisa storms in wanting to hook up with her date but he's like puking in the stall so she's like i'm out of here i'm gonna go cool off in the pool yeah paul's the one that we saw a little earlier spiking the punch so at this point i'm assuming he's been one of the few people really drinking the punch because he is shit face he's puking vomiting and for the rest of the movie paul is very obnoxious and he's fucking trashed and that's all he is yeah exactly exactly um, and so Pam and Mark go tell the, uh, I guess she's like the, who is she like the, a teacher or a professor Yeah. about the yeah. prowler. And so Miss Allison, Miss Allison, that's right. She makes an announcement to the, uh, to the group of, of the party goers that there is a prowler around campus and she tells everyone that they need to stay inside the building. Yeah. I gotta say about this, Miss Allison, not a huge character, but I think she is just lovely. She is wonderfully acted. Uh, lots of little subtle little nuances to her character. Like when she's even speaking into the microphone, little um, things she does around the microphone and turning back and delivering additional pieces of dialogue. Really, really, really well played. This cast is, in the sense of performances, quite strong, rather appealing. Uh, even down to some of these smaller supportive roles. Because as you find out, this character is not huge. She does have a big moment coming up. But she delivers pretty fucking well in the few moments she uh, she is on camera. So we, we do learn that they are not allowing anyone to lose, leave the dance. Because of the fact that that there is a, apparently a prowler on campus. So people are not allowed to go anywhere until they figure things out. They're even getting a posse together to kind of, you know go through the campus and check out the property around it and see if they can find anything. And while that happens, they're not letting the students leave the building. But Paul is so fucking intoxicated that he starts like physically demanding that they let him leave so he can pursue Lisa, who did manage to get out before they uh, locked everything down. Yeah, so she's at the pool. She's swimming. She's having a, she's in her little swimsuit. Uh, there's a scene where she gets out of the pool. She's climbing out of the, off the ladder, up the ladder to get out of the pool. And the killer kicks her right in the face, like hard, like kicks her hard in the face. So she falls back into the water and you can tell she's like stunned. She's like flailing around. She's trying to get her bearings, but she keeps, I mean, she's, she's been kicked in the face. So she finally gets like going. She's swimming towards the edge of the pool. And as she's getting ready to get to the edge to get out, he jumps up out of the water behind her. 
uh, and grabs her and slices open her throat with the bayonet. Oh my god, man. Again, this movie has already set a high bar, and it, the fact that it continues to match that caliber and quality as we proceed kill after kill blows my mind. I mean, it's Savini. Like, it, Savini is a master of the craft. And uh, one other thing I do have to say is that while the pacing in certain areas is a struggle and maybe a bit, a bit arduous to get through, when it comes to the kills, the fact that it lingers actually, I think, heightens the experience greatly. Because as the sequence unfolds, again, they don't pull away. They linger. They really just let the camera sit on these moments. And you watch the bayonet sawing through the flesh of her neck. You see the water filling up with blood. It cuts to the shots of her legs kicking a final couple times against the light of the pool until they go dead. Um, just a startling, shocking moment. And even down, like, I might, I might call bullshit on the fact that he's the one that jumps out of the water, you know, that he's in there the whole time and can pull this off. I, I would normally call bullshit, but again, because this fucker has like military training, I'm sure he has climbed through fucking mud tunnels and crept through uh, sewage and had to dive into water and everything. Like I buy it because of who he is and what his background is. It, it makes it palatable and acceptable. So when he just erupts out of the water, it's fucking startling. It's terrifying. And man, like when you see the meat of that neck just peeling open and the blood, it's like the scarlet, like crimson red blood. Uh, oh, and then he dips the body in the water. He lets he like he pushes her down to drown her. And you see the blood just clouding out of her neck, just pumping out. It is it's shocking. It's in a way, it's almost stunning because it is so beautifully done this gory violent death but my god like it is the image of of her bleeding out which ended up making the poster art that that is lisa's body being held it sticks with you it sticks with you oh yeah especially the shot of her like after he lets her go like floating under going underwater sinking underwater and you see the, the wound on the neck just gushing out blood as the pool fills with her blood, it's a gnarly effect. I mean, I, I remember watching, I don't remember what it was. It was years ago. I was, I remember watching something, some like horror documentary or something when I was a kid and Tom Savini was on there and they had, they were basically talking about how he did this effect where it was basically a, you know, you take a, you take the machete and you cut a groove into it so that it fits on the neck so that it looks like the machete is, is going in. And I always remember that. And that's kind of the effect that we used in, I have a, th a very similar throat slitting scene in party night, my first film. And we do the exact same thing. And it's because of this film. And because I watched that documentary where Tom Savini kind of talked about how they made it look so real, uh, just a little piece of, you know, tidbit there. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, going full circle with what we said at the start of this film, you, you look back on some of these classic movies, even some of these ones that maybe are not acknowledged to be like a um, like a Freddy or a Jason or uh, or a Leatherface. A lot of these films have so much more influence on the genre than we necessarily give them credit for. Uh, and this this kill, I can't think of many to date that can t hold a candle to this this sequence. I think this is one of those few moments in horror history where people are always striving to match the caliber. And I just don't know if they ever quite will because it's just, it is so masterfully executed. 
back at the dance, the uh, Sally finally tells the, the Miss Allison that Lisa went to the pool. Uh, so Miss Allison's like, I have to go get her. So she heads out dumb, but she does it. Uh, and this is when the, Sally's nerdy boyfriend wants to like get her alone. And since they can't go outside, he tells her he knows a spot in the basement. So he takes her down in the basement and this whole sequence is set up to be another kill scene. They go in the back of the basement. They're making out. Somebody's watching them and you think, okay, this is going to be another awesome kill scene. And it's nothing. It's like the old, the old pervert, like Dean or teachers is the one that watch is watching. And the minute it cuts and you never go back to these characters again. Oh my God. It was the Dean. It I, was, thought, it, I it thought it was, was old man Clarence. I don't know who it was. It was just some old man. Here, I don't let's, know. Let's talk about this moment for a second. Because this really is like, if I'm in my list of gripes, this is probably, this one takes the cake. So I was prepared to discuss this specific sequence. This scene, this whole thing of them finding this kind of like hidden basement layer is treated very much like a build up to something more. And this character, not so much her boyfriend, Ben. Ben is very much like, secondary to all of this but at least the character of sally has been given enough screen time and purpose that you think that she is going to get some kind of something horrible to happen to her just because she's been on camera quite a bit comparatively speaking to the others you've got this whole thing of them creeping through this basement layer they get to the storage room they're making out on this fucking mattress she hears something. It's all the things you expect to lead up to a kill. She hears something moving. Um, he tells her it's just the wind. It cuts back and you see, maybe it's old Mr. Clarence. Maybe it's the fucking Dean. You don't know because it's never fucking touched on again. We never see these characters again. And it is, it is. I think, honestly, I mean, there are a couple flaws in this movie, but this is one of the worst of the worst i hate a loose end especially one that like this had all the means and set up to build up to something significant i mean it has to be a cut scene and i haven't looked into it maybe it is maybe one of our listeners can comment let us know if they know something about where this was supposed to go because it feels so very incomplete it actually it angers me in a way as someone who very much enjoys this movie this moment angers me because I expected something and I didn't get anything. You get nothing except another death scene, but it's not these two. It's Miss Allison outside by the pool as she notices a large amount of blood in the pool. She gasps and takes off running back to the, uh, to the house, but he's immediately stopped, grabbed, and stabbed straight through the neck with the bayonet. Another great effect. I mean, not quite another as... great effect, but like, but why? I mean, it just this this particular character, you know, who we don't really get a lot from throughout the whole film. She's going to be the one to get a death scene, but the two, you know, characters fucking in the basement don't. And that's why just, I say that had to be. I mean, something had to hit the cutting room floor because it just seems like that was about to go somewhere, you know. And yeah, her scene does seem a little more shoehorned into the, the overall story as it's unfolding, because she is very much like a very secondary character, but I liked, I liked her performance for what she did. Um, I love the moment of her seeing the pool filling up with blood and the, the effect itself again is 
while not quite as um, memorable as the sequence prior with Lisa, it's still very impressive. You see the bayonet go through the, the soft area of her throat and she's screaming. It's all obviously her torso because she's moving and screaming and writhing and he's holding her there and you see it like digging into the meat of her throat and blood is running all over her feet and running down her body as she struggles with them. It, it's another phenomenal moment. Yeah, very effective, very painful looking again. Kind of, I mean, Tom Savini kind of recreated the same effect in the burning, uh, the the kind of the neck stab, mm-hmm. yeah. very full, you know, you get the whole view of it. Camera doesn't cut away. He did that a couple times in the burning, the raft scene, and then the girl uh, that gets the head shears in her neck in the woods while she's fucking that guy. So, I mean, yeah, very, very powerful. Very like it makes you wince because you're like, God, you can feel that. Paul is apparently he's, he's at the police station. He's in jail for public intoxication. He's, he's taunting Mark, but Mark decides he wants to go check out the dorm again, uh, to see what's up, see if he can find, you know, what happened to, uh, Sherry and Carl, because where have they been this whole time as he's leaving? Kingsley, who is the clerk that we met earlier at the convenience store, shows up very ominously and he's pissed because he's like, you better get those kids at the dance under the control because they're out at the cemetery. And I've seen I saw what they're doing. And Mark's like, you need to go home. And Kingsley like they left the gate wide open. So, of course, red herring. But of course. Mark and Pam have to go to the cemetery to check out this, check this out. They get there and there is another long scene of Pam waiting in the car while Mark wanders around the cemetery. Yeah, I think that the issue with this is the fact that it's so similar to the last sequence because she was in the she was in the jeep he was out peeking around like i mean give me suspense but at least diversify it a bit i suppose would be my one complaint um i will say leading up to this the whole thing with kingsley like he is very much made to be a red herring but take 30 seconds out of each of your fucking stalking scenes and give this character a little more development and i'll buy it because again fine performance uh very ominous seems foreboding in all that he says and does, uh, flesh that out. I mean, you guys had time for it. You didn't have to fill it with just walking around houses for four minutes. Like, there is something to explore here. But they don't. They have this brief little moment with this character, um, and and they're off, and they're at the cemetery. Um, Again, the cemetery stalking footage, very well executed, very ominous, tons of fucking tombstones, uh, great score very suspenseful slow it's it's slow he could have gotten from the jeep to the fucking discovery he makes when he gets to the fucking tombstone with the with the casket revealed he could have made that journey in one fourth of the time and it would still would have been suspenseful but they just let it linger and it's she's sitting there gasping and worrying but it, I mean, again, it looks good. Like, I can't really bitch about it. Just there was so much more they could have done with this time. But he does end up finding what is Rosemary's tombstone atop a big dug up hole where the casket is revealed. Yeah. And at the same time he finds this, we cut back to Pam, 
in the truck who now does see looks like crazy auto is outside staring at her from outside the vehicle. Yeah. He's peeking through the window and causes her to scream and react. And it's quite a moment. Um, again, wish Otto would have maybe had another scene so I could have well, remembered he, who he was. He sort of does, but, uh, she gets out and runs to Mark, uh, or actually Mark hears her scream, runs back to get her. And of course takes her back to the grave. He goes down to open the grave. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you opening this casket? That's kind of not good. But he opens it, and lo and behold, Lisa's body is inside. Pam gives a very nice reaction to this. It's it's a very well played moment. Oh, yeah. she's great. She she's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of unsettling that this killer dragged Lisa's body all through the cemetery with nobody seeing him uh, and dug up this grave to put this body inside of it. All oblivious to anybody else, (laughs) but he did it right. Makes for a nice, effective little. And this is the moment where he uh, where Mark turns around and reveals that this is, in fact, Rosemary's tombstone. Oh, yeah. You see the you see the there's a rose on the tombstone. Uh, now the next scene, Mark is, they're back at the police station. Mark is calling the lodge where Sheriff is staying and this desk clerk steals the fucking show. <laughs> but again, I why? know, I know it's this, this sequence is so drug. I know, out. but I kind of love it, Troy. I'm not going to like, is it, is it, does it go on uh, way longer than it needs to? Yes. Is this desk clerk who I aspire to be in my future? Absolutely. He doesn't give a fuck about anything. This desk clerk is masterfully played. <laughs> like He's playing cards when he gets the fucking phone call from Mark. And he is so irritated that anybody would dare interrupt him or bother him. And so when Mark starts pleading with him and, you know, demanding that he call over to the sheriff, get in touch with him, do something, this... F- Fat fuck. And I, I mean, I say this, I'm overweight, so I can say <laughs> this man is morbidly obese. And like, it, no wonder he doesn't make the journey. It has to be a challenge for him to move. He feigns leaving the desk by making the wooden door like clank so it sounds like he's walked away. Goes back to playing cards for a little bit. We're, we're with him for the whole fucking journey. Like, everyone's just sitting there in silence. Mark is like playing with a pencil. Everyone's nervous. The fat man's playing cards. And then he like hits the door again and makes it sound like he's come back. And he's like, well, he's not at his cabin. And Mark is like, you need to get in touch with him. Can you at least fucking leave him a message? And the, and the, the, the big man's like, I guess I can do that. He's <laughs> such a little fucking cunt over it. Like he's bitching about everything. So he has nothing to write on. So he takes the brown paper bag of the food he's eating. And he writes like Mark's name down. He's like, okay, I'll get it to him. Bye. And, and Mark finally, after a 45 minute long phone call, gets off the phone with this guy. And the guy just like tosses the note aside and goes back to playing cards because he's a fucking piece of shit. But you know what? I love him for it. <laughs> Yeah, he is definitely not a customer service oriented individual now, is he? He's not the the welcome face you expect to see at a, I'm sure, a fine establishment, you know, a fine motel that this is. Oh, he's like fighting with Mark. He's like, oh, I'm sure the Shire is sleeping by now. <laughs> like he'll, he'll say or do anything to get out having to physically move. Having to get up. Yeah. But uh, it's quite a fucking it's charade. But it- it's it's a okay. It's fun, but it's it goes on way too long. It's pointless. Like yeah, we did not need to see all of this transpire. 
as entertaining as it is. I mean, now, but it's shot like that being said, yes, I agree with you. It, in this movie, for what the tone of this film is, did this do anything to benefit or enhance this as a horror movie? Not at all. Does it entertain me greatly? Absolutely. Is it shot very nicely? Is his acting quite hilarious? Is the whole thing rather comedic and comical because it takes so long? Yes, but it feels very unnecessary. Oh, it is unnecessary. They could have done this in a, they didn't even have to do a phone. I mean, this could have been accomplished in literally two seconds of screen time. But now Mark calls the state police uh, who tell them, A, that they can be there in a half hour, and B, they caught the man who robbed the store and stabbed the clerk. So this prowler cannot be him. Oh, yeah, there's like a whole moment of revelation where they're like, oh, my God, it has to be somebody else. This makes it even scarier. And he, Mark, gets kind of shitty for a minute. He's like, I'm taking you back to the dance because I don't want to lug you around anymore. And Pam. Yeah, he, 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 oh, he pulls up to the thing. He's like, get out and go back in the dance. And she's like, what? What are you doing? He's like, I don't want to drag you around anymore. And she's like, go play sheriff a little bit longer. Why don't you? And like, and like yeah. again, do not fuck with Pam. Like, you do not fuck with but Pam. They- she's. No, but then they, but then they like make up, right? Like she just, she stands there for a minute and he's like, okay, come on. <laughs> but I like, I like this little <laughs> moment. Cause like even these little, there's a few silent moments between characters where like things are like said without being said. And like, you could tell she's about to like storm back in and go back in there. And then she stops and like, they look at each other and he's just like, fine. Like he doesn't even say it, but like, it's a well-played moment. Cause the actors are very competent in what they're doing. They go, yeah. So she gets back in the car they go back to Mr. Chatham's house. What their fascination with Chatham's house is, I don't know. Like, why do they think the, that's another thing. I why do they think that this, whatever's going on, Chatham is responsible because the old fucking man is in a wheelchair. But anyways, they go back, they break in for the second time. He has a shotgun out. Why? I don't know. Because they, at this point, I mean, I guess they did find Lisa's body, right? So they do know something's up. I totally forgot about that. So that does make a little bit more sense that they're being a little bit more guarded. He has a shotgun. But again, I don't understand why it's leading back to Chatham. There's no way Chatham in a wheelchair could have killed Lisa and wheeled her body. Well, because of the, the tombstone. I think if anything right now at this point, Troy, is like they've, the body was in Rosemary's. But the, the, an old, I'm not... A 90-year-old man in a wheelchair is not going to be able to... I don't think they're thinking... I think they're more worried about Chatham. Oh, did you get... I didn't get that impression at all. I think... I My impression is they that... They keep talking about him being an old man and everything. I don't think they think he's the killer. I, my impression was they thought that he was involved. Oh <laughs> Can you imagine if I don't he know. was, in fact, the killer? Can, what a can, twist. Oh, my God. He Wheeling around in his wheelchair, wheeling... <laughs> can you imagine him, like, with... Lisa's body sprawled out over his wheelchair. He's had like a wheeling. fake tank built over the wheelchair. So he looks like he's in a little tank as he's like going around the hillside. Yeah, that would be. I also, but I also love Roger that every time, every time that Pam and Mark enter Chatham's house, the killer is already inside. Because the minute they get in the house and Mark starts upstairs with his shotgun, we do get a shot of the killer Pulling his bayonet out already again. Uh, Vicky's downstairs exploring. And this is what you mentioned earlier with the killer liking to do similar things. This is when the lights go out in the house, making it that much more creepy. Mark is headed downstairs to check the fuse. He tells uh, he tells Pam. Did I say Vicky? I think I said Vicky. 
I told you I was going to do that, didn't I? The actress's name is Vicky. The character's Pam. Uh, Pam goes, he tells Pam he's going to check the fuse. And as on the way down the stairs, the killer gets out and it like attacks him and like hits him over the head. Yeah. Baffled as to why the killer did not just violently kill him. Kill him. Um, very much not in line with what the killer has done prior. Um, the only thing I'm curious about maybe has to do with the killer's relationship to the specific character as it proceeds. Um, because when you, when you, you know, when you discover what's going on, it's, it's, you're, I'm out on a limb, but I'm just trying to assume as to why. I don't know. I don't know. But so yeah, he, he grabs him, he knocks him out. Um, it's uh, the, the grab itself is kind of suspenseful because, you know, the killer just steps out of the doorway and just pulls him into it. Um, and in he and Pam are calling to each other from different floors. So she doesn't see any of this. She has no idea. Um, but yeah, he's knocked out. And then after a moment, the lights do go back on and Pam notices a fresh rose placed under uh, beneath Rosemary's portrait. Which is new, you know, because obviously they're there earlier. This is new. And then when you know her attention is drawn over in that direction, she also notices what is appears to be a locket hang hung from within the fireplace. Has somebody like intentionally hung this locket in there? So she, you know, she goes to it and she reaches into the fireplace, uh, up through like kind of like up through the chimney, trying to, you know, uh, grab it and get it to come loose and she's pulling on whatever it's attached to and in doing this she pulls hard enough that all of a sudden the body of rosemary <laughs> just comes tumbling down the chimney uh and then just emerges looking right at her crumbling and all fucking like dead and just nothing but skeletal at this point uh, and she just starts fucking screaming her fucking head off yeah just ew. yeah as she runs out of the room, but the killer, as she opens the door, the killer's there uh, with this bayonet out. And there is, we do get uh, treated. We talk about chase scenes. We get a nice little chase scene through this house. Uh, as she's running, trying to hide from the killer, she goes into the room with all of the furniture covered with the sheets. Uh, and she hides under the bed as he comes in and with his pitchfork starts stabbing through furniture, stabbing under furniture, knocking shit over as she is like, you know, trying not to be noticed under the bed. And of course, in Friday the 13th Part 2 fashion, a rat crawls under the bed with her. And as she notices like his, she can hear where he's at in the room, right? So when she hears that he is kind of far away from the bed, she's able to roll under or out from under the bed, get up and run to a different room. But he does pursue her. And there is a kind of this cool moment where he has the pitchfork jam through the door she's trying to close it and you know pam has been pretty resourceful and and you know level-headed throughout the film and this is another example of her you know even in a moment like this thinking because what does she do she grabs the end of the pitchfork and bends it so that it breaks off and he comes into the door with the bayonet out. And she, what I like about, she's not backing that down, Roger. She has the pitchfork outstretched. They're going to battle, right? She, it's not like she's cowering, screaming like we would see a lot of other final girls do. This bitch has the pitchfork right out in front of her. She is going to fight. However, yeah, yeah. before that happens, a fucking shotgun blast erupts and fucking the killer goes flying against the wall 
And we cut back to the entrance door and we see Otis. Good old Otis has shot the killer. Yeah, completely fucking unexpected. Shabam, like out of nowhere. What a twist. What a twist. And then we get treated. Then we get this. I don't know. I thought this was awkward. It's like this really like romantic <laughs> music. Like, starts yeah, it is very solemnly romantic. And they're and the two are like Otis, this old burly, you know, dirty guy, and Pam are like staring at each other, like almost like they're lusting after each other. And she's like making she's like making groaning noises. Did you notice that she's like? I oh, think that well, for, I think that oh. I think what we're seeing is a moment of everything's all right now. Like, well, it came off as hey, I want to fuck this. It's weird. Otis dude. It's unexpected. <laughs> I, I gotta, and I gotta like, backtrack real quick, Troy, because you glossed over something that I think is really important of acknowledging. Uh, before we get too far, before this chase scene takes place, she is freaking out. She opens the door and she opens it to reveal the prowler. And before he pursues her, he holds a rose up to her, and oh he yeah does something that is rare what does he what does he say he says, I couldn't understand. i'm ready for our date rose oh and he goes to hand a flower to uh pam and i think you know it's the only line it's the only thing he says the whole movie but i love the fact that he had this one little bit of dialogue and it it, it doesn't it, you know could have come off cheesy but you hear it coming through like the cloth and the mask and everything and it's all like uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, like Darth Vader. Yeah, I couldn't understand what he said. I tried to turn the volume up on my television. I still couldn't understand. But yeah, you're right. It is when he tries when he gives her the rose. It is a pretty kind of creepy, unsettling thing. You're right about that. Yeah, and it does go through that whole pretty grand chase sequence. I mean, if you like chase sequences in your horror movies, I will say the Prowler delivers. Yeah, it's not the best, but it's certainly. I mean, it's not the worst either. I mean, at least they give us something. Uh, you know, after having to sit through watching these two characters parade, parade around cemeteries and, you know, for countless minutes with nothing happening, I was happy to get a chase scene, but yeah, this Otis and her staring at each other very awkwardly finally ends because all of a sudden Otis gets shot. Oh, it's as far as gunshots go, normally they're toss away, but like you see like just like blood erupt on the wall behind this guy. And he is, I mean, this man is dead without a doubt in my mind. This man is dead. Yeah. Uh, Shoots Otis. And luckily again, Vicky is a very capable final girl because she right away embeds the pitchfork broken into the pitchfork in the back of the killer and causing him to drop his gun. And I love this, Roger. I love this little moment where she thinks right away to grab that fucking gun. Yeah. Like she, yeah. Gra- you said Vicky again. I'm by sorry. The way. I love you, but no. It's Pam. <laughs> yeah, no. I, Pam, um, I knew I was going to do Pam is this. nothing but resourceful. Oh, I know. You, you called it out. I did. You did. He said before this whole thing, I did. he said, I'm going to call her fucking Vicky. Um, Pam is nothing but resourceful beginning to end. I got to say it. Like coming down in this moment, like she. When she digs this fucking pitchfork into his back, like it is, this man only has a, a few minutes left to live because it is vital. Like this woman, <laughs> she destroys this guy. And then like she goes to grab the gun and he starts struggling with her and he's like on top of her. But you hear like 
he's starting to die on top of her. Like he's like, uh, but he's, he is determined to kill her. And in the midst of the struggle, he just ends up yanking his mask off and Troy, lo and behold, who is it? It's the sheriff. Unexpected. Who was supposed to be on his fishing trip. Yes. I mean, uh, shocking as it may be, it's Sheriff Frazier. And apparently, Sheriff Frazier is the same prowler who killed Rosemary, what, 35 years prior. Um, and, and, and I mean, this, the ages match up. It makes sense. It's the sheriff. And maybe I would have been more excited about this if they would have, like we said earlier, taken a little more time away from some of the excessive stalking and just given us a, a little bit more to go off of with his relationship to the town, his the potential relationship with Rosemary. Like the sheriff really was just in it, that one opening scene. And then he's been gone. And they threw us that one little lengthy scene, I think, to throw us off the, the, the phone call um, to the lodge to make it seem like he was there. But like, other than that, like the sheriff just does not come into play enough to really like make for an impactful reveal. Well, especially considering like, okay, so he, he, when we talk about like motive, right? What is his motive for this particular killing spree? He, he killed Rosemary, right? That's the girl who scorned him. So he killed her already. So what is the purpose of, of this particular killing spree? Is it because the graduation dance brought back, flooded back all the memories of what Rosemary did to him and of that night? Are we supposed to believe then that his, you know, PSTD from the war has carried over 35 years and it like triggered him to do this again? It's just never really explained. There's really no purpose at all for him going on this killing spree, considering he already killed Rosemary. And what the fuck happened to Major Chatham? Like if that, if anybody was going to be a target this evening of this sheriff's killing spree, it I would think it would be him. Yeah, it's definitely a lot to really like, man, I mean, we could really, if we wanted to sit down and dissect this character's motive, um, because so little is given to us, like you can really kind of try to conclude what happened. Uh, it's not really put out there for the for the viewer to see 100% for sure. What I take away from this is that exactly what you said, the dance resurgence you know of, of memories triggered this ptsd that this individual had from the war associated with everything that happened and when that dance triggered that it flooded back all of these memories of what happened when he had this situation with rosemary and how he felt and what it brought him to that night because when you have that moment at the door where he says i'm ready for our date rosemary i think it's almost for him in some ways recreating that evening and it's all transpiring on all the grief and the anger and the rage is transpiring as well. Uh, we certainly don't see enough of it to make that feel like a confident like response, but I think that's what I'm supposed to take away from it. Uh, but God, I mean, this movie, this movie's great, but this movie could have been one of the ones that went down in the, you know, annals of horror as one of the greatest. If I think they just would have devoted a little more time and a little more dialogue and a little more characterization 
to these focal characters that the story seems to be focusing around that uh, kind of just go under the radar. The sheriff, Chatham. I, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, from what we're, what we're given, which is not very much, I mean, I think it's a pretty, you know, rational conclusion to come to. I just wish we were given more. I wish that more, uh, more time was spent on maybe some of that aspect of the film rather than a lot of just pointless wandering around scenes. Uh, but we do got to get back to the ending of the film because she, as they're struggling, uh, Pam, I almost said Vicky again, caught myself. Pam does get the best of him, gets the hold of the shotgun. And there is an incredible effect of, sh- of her, Pam, blowing the sheriff's head off. And let's talk about that effect. It, it The head explodes. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty violent. Yeah, it, you know, I referenced already earlier in this um, review, and I'm going to bring it up again only because it's the same year, but the movie Scanners. Uh, but both the, the white eyes that you see in the, the character of, I think it was Carl, uh, when he was stabbed through the head, and now the visual of this head explosion both ring very similar to Scanners. Because it's just, I mean, this this is this effect is wild. It's grotesque. Um, she, you know, she she or shoots this sawed off double barrel shotgun into his head, and his head just fucking explodes. And you see the jaw like dislocate. It's wild. The only thing that I I find um, disappointing is that they don't let it linger. They do like a dissolve to black and then go to the next moment. And I like for me as a horror movie aficionado, like cut back to Pam getting splattered with brain matter. Let me see a little bit more. You you've you guys have not held back with a single other moment over the course of this whole film. What what's with the fade to black? Yeah, it's quick. They don't they don't linger on this at all. It's quick. And also you mentioned it reminds you of scanners. It also reminds me of another very uh infamous Tom Savini effect from Maniac. We get the exact same head explosion in Maniac. Uh, when the killer and maniac shoots the guy through the car, the front windshield and his head explodes. So it's really cool, you know, watching this film to see like Tom Savini definitely has a specific style and I can see why he was definitely the go-to guy for effects in the eighties. This among, th- but for me, this film is among some of probably his best work. Uh, the effects in this film are stellar. Uh, but after the head explosion, it cuts to the morning. Uh, Mark takes Pam <laughs> back to her dorm. Uh, she goes back up in the room. He lets her go up by herself, but she goes back up to the room. She hears the shower still running. So she slowly goes into the bathroom and finds the body of both uh, Sherry and Carl. Carl is tied. He has his neck tied around with a tie tied to the shower head. And as she approaches, he reaches out and grabs her for a moment, which do you think that really happened? Could this guy still be alive or was she imagining that? No, I, you know, I think it is man. Honestly, is from what I've taken away with this moment, this finale is I think that this movie subtly was trying to reference yet again the idea of PTSD from traumatic events lingering with you and staying with you and haunting you. I think what we saw at the end was now Pam's own personal PTSD 
from what she had just gone through, what she just experienced, having this kind of break after seeing the visual of these dead bodies associated with what had just happened. Uh, she like this whole time she's been, I think, kind of dreading going back into that shower, uh, suspecting that her friends are dead. And boom, here we are. Sherry's dead. Carl's dead. And um, and this moment is the only kind of fantastical moment in the movie when he grabs her. His eyes are still that very white like, I mean, it's it's haunting, it's terrifying, but it does feel very fantastical. But And then she steps back and there's a moment where there's like a snap back to reality. And I really think that what happened was, is she was just having her own PTSD break and realizing that this is going to haunt her for the rest of her life. Yeah, that makes you know? a lot of sense because I was like, there is no way this guy could still be alive. He got that bayonet through his skull. <laughs> It had to have pierced his brain, but that definitely, cause I was, I was going there as well. I said, okay, she's imagining this. It's the trauma from the night before, but I'm like, well, maybe, I don't know, but that makes, I'm going to go with that because I cannot believe this guy is still alive. Uh, but she screams and the film ends. Yeah, man. And like, while it, it makes for a very like f- full story, complete story arc for her character. Um, I, uh, I, had forgotten just how many like loose ends there were uh, over the course of the movie that I feel very bummed that I didn't get like a satisfying conclusion to mainly the story arc with Sally and her boyfriend, Ben never being revisited. Uh, and the whole thing about major Chatham also being like apparently this major factor of the story and just never being revisited. And it, this movie has so much going for it. Like, listen, I'm not going to say that this movie isn't phenomenal at what it does because, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes down to the horror elements, this movie delivers more than most. Like, I cannot praise the deaths, the buildup to the deaths, how they're executed. I cannot praise them enough. But for me, if you're going to give me this really intriguing premise, which is hinted at this whole idea of how these soldiers are affected after the war, how certain things set them off. All of the, the, the basic, like the basic blueprints for what the story is there. And maybe they weren't wanting to shock or offend. I'm thinking maybe is something that like, it was still not a great, there's not a lot of understanding of PTSD. Maybe at this time it's 1981. It really wasn't as explored as it is now. I don't even know if they could get away with making this movie now, because now it's a totally different th- entity. PTSD, like you respect it. You're like, oh, we're aware of it. We know it's out there. I will say this is one of those films, Troy. Part of me wishes they would do a remake. For, uh, I said this about another review recently, but I don't want to get on a trend with that. But imagine a remake that really allowed the script and the story to like delve into the impact of what happened delve into how the the you know the killer the prowler himself was actually set off or triggered by a specific event and why it worked out the way it did i would think you would have to find a filmmaker that really had a passion and understanding for what the this this film was was trying to say i would be afraid that it would just go in the hands of somebody trying to make a quick cash grab and hyping up the gore elements of the film and that would be the focus because honestly roger like we mentioned, if you mention the Prowler to anybody, the first thing they're going to mention or they're going to bring up are the death scenes. I mean, that's what the film is is known for. The film is not known for an intricate plot. The film is not known for its sometimes 
you know, suspenseful slow burn scenes. It's known strictly for its death scenes, which I guess there's worse things for a slasher film to be known for. Right. But I would think you'd have to put it in the hands of someone that would be careful with it. Well, and I think though that like what, and what a perfect full circle conversation to have considering how we started this episode off the topic of like elevated horror, the idea of now horror in the, you know, 2020s. How is it different? What is it doing different? How is it deeper? How is it more thoughtful? How is it expanding on the genre? This is a film that if it fell into the hands of someone who understood that and understood how to handle this delicately and do it in a way that was both really exploring the complexity of PTSD and the effect it has on somebody, how it could possibly, you know, push someone to a certain point while also checking the boxes of a, of a horror movie. I mean, a, it could possibly really offend people or B it could, it could be a phenomenal character study. I love a character study. So, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Roger, the prowler has a lot of things going for it. As you mentioned, um, special effects are top notch. The acting pretty solid across the board. I, the, the final character of, of Pam, who I mistakenly called Vicky because that's the actress's name. Sorry. It is great. It's shot competently. Well, I mean, my big complaint with the film, and I think I, I'm not alone. I think there's a choir of horror fans that would hop on board with me with this is the pacing is so sluggish at times. And a lot of scenes just go nowhere. Um, and it can be, you know, a, a chore to sit through. I find myself, you know, a lot of times with watching this film with the scenes with Mark and Pam just wandering around, I tune out, you know, it's, it's still a standout, standout slasher from the, from the eighties. Like I said, at the beginning of the episode, if I had to pick five slasher films from the eighties that I would say were required viewing for people that wanted to get a kind of a taste of what the eighties slasher genre was, this would be one of them. And I think that's high praise, you know, coming from me, despite my issues with the pacing of the film and the fact that there are plot elements that are never revisited again. But at the end of the day, it's, Hey, it's a, I think it's a film that people need to check out. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would agree with you wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly on that. Um, I think that it is a, it is a movie that while maybe it didn't completely master the, um, the craft of developing some of these suspense sequences, it certainly set the groundwork for films that came after it within the genre, thus did succeed. Uh, and uh, some of some of the little influences, the stingers, the score, how it builds, the way it evolves, um, while it may be extraneous and very drawn out, I think I've seen movies stylized after this film that have taken that and, and really uh, built off of it and succeeded, you know. And so I, I think its blueprint uh, has been used time and time again its formula has been recreated since very similar to uh the movie uh, in some ways my bloody valentine uh same year you know you saw a lot of the stylistic horror come out at this point um and that is certainly carried through within the genre uh treating these movies as more than just you know low budget disposable pieces of cinema we were starting to see people within the genre really get artistic, get stylistic, uh, experiment with their style. This movie doesn't always, you know, hit the nail on the head, but often it does. And it does make for a very 
visually sumptuous and um, enjoyable watch in the sense of just the craftsmanship at play. It's really a very well done film. Well, I think it's, you know, I, I like the comparison to My Bloody Valentine with this film because I think there are similar elements uh, between the two films, particularly like My Bloody Valentine's final act where there are a lot of, uh, I don't want to say drawn out scenes, but scenes of characters just wandering around through the mine shaft. Um, I think they're a little bit more atmospheric and effective in My Bloody Valentine, but two uh, good pairing. I would also suggest pairing this with, you know, watching this in Friday the 13th part four together because you can definitely see the director's style. Um, I think it carries over from this film to Friday the 13th part four. Uh, but yeah, so that is, that's the prowler, Roger. That's the prowler. We did it. We, we did got it. through it. My God, we survived two hours of the prowler. Uh, before we let you go though, we do want to remind you of the Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. Lots of bonus content. We give you, we, we post two full length uh, bonus episodes a month and a mini episode. So three bonus episodes a month on our Patreon. If you don't want to do that, go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five, leave us a five star review. Even if I mistakenly call a character by the actress's name every once in a while, don't hold that against me. Um, but lastly, our biggest surprise, Roger, is that we, have a, a another episode in January coming out. We for our Patreons, we also post our uh, monthly. We post ahead of time, a month ahead of time, what our episodes for the following month were going to be. Right. So those of you on our Patreon, you saw that our four January episodes were going to be Mountaintop Motel Massacre, The Ritual, Prowler, and what's the other one? Oh my God! What? Uh, oh my! What, what other one what did we do this we did month? The Ritual. We did the Prowler, Mountaintop Massacre, Motel, and you. It was it's another one that you would have done, isn't it? Oh my god! Yeah, I I can't think of it right now. But we did, we posted those four. But we have a week left in January, guys. We we got a little ahead of ourselves. So we have a, another episode dropping next week for January, and we are just going to have a lot of fun with it. So I'm going to tell you right now the film that we are reviewing is a super obscure 80 slasher flick. We're going from a very stylized kind of high revered slasher flick to one that's not so much. But for but somehow some way folks this film got on Shutter. So if you haven't seen this film and you need to watch it before the next episode, it's on Shutter and it is the 80 slasher flick called Sledgehammer directed by David Pryor, who also directed Killer Workout, a.k.a. Aerobicide. Talk about a power combo. A power combo. I picked this film because it's so fucking absurd and Roger's never seen it, and it's on Shudder, and I still cannot believe that Shudder picked this film up. So it's going to be a blast because, like I said, Roger's never seen this. He has no idea what he's getting himself into. So, folks, if you have not seen Sledgehammer, it's on Shutter. Please watch it before next week, next, you know, when the episode drops. So, yeah. But until then, hey, you have the prowler. <laughs> I mean, what a what a way to kill 2 hours, literally, violently. Kill 2 hours of your time than by spending it with us here at Dark Knight of the Podcast. And uh if you like if you like what you see and hear, uh 
go over to that fucking Patreon, sign up. We're really hoping to get to double digits. Also, get over to that goddamn Apple podcast and leave us a goddamn fucking review. And I, we appreciate the stars. We appreciate but leave us, leave us a fucking written review. Please. So help me God. Uh, <laughs> I'll come and do the same for you. You got a podcast? Let me know. Uh, but no, seriously, guys, we appreciate everything you do. We love you. And we're always having a good time with you. So um, we'll work we have a better time next time with a goddamn fucking sledgehammer. I want to be your sledgehammer. I've been singing it all week ever I since know. you told me. Wait, well, wait till you see the movie, Roger. You'll be, singing, you'll be singing a lot more. All right, folks, two hours. We are done. So guys, have a great evening and we will be back at you next week. Have a good one. Bye. Good night.